1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. 200 years ago this week, Napoleon died in St. Helena, one of the most remarkable lives and careers in the history of Europe. He died a British prisoner on one of the most remote scraps of land in the world. I visited St. Helena last year and we've got a lot of content about Napoleon and his death available at HistoryHit.tv. Please go and check it out. HistoryHit.tv, it's like a a digital history channel where you get documentaries, you get podcasts, you get audio, you get all sorts of things there. You're going to love it. And we got a documentary of me visiting the place, the room where Napoleon died. It's all laid out just as it was 200 years ago. Big anniversary, folks. Go and check it out there. And also, while you're there, you can enjoy some of the more remarkable other history of a really wonderful island, St. Leon, and I fell in love with the place. So please go and check that out on historyhit.tv. It's like Netflix, but just for history. And there's a big focus on Napoleon this week. There's a focus on Napoleon on this podcast too. Because a few years ago, I talked to the very brilliant historian, Adam Zamoyski. We were meant to discuss the whole of Napoleon, because he's written a biography. But in the end, we didn't really get past his early life, because it was so interesting. We just decided to make the whole podcast about that. I need to have a follow-up, actually. I need to book the guy. Adam, if you're listening, call me. So this is a podcast from our archive. We discuss Napoleon's birth, his rise to power, who he was, and whether he was short. You're going to love it. So here, before you head to history.tv... Is Adam Samoyski talking about Napoleon Bonaparte? Enjoy, Adam. Thank you very much indeed for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. And another giant book about Napoleon. You must have approached this with a bit of trepidation.
0: Yes, uh, I have to say that when when it was first uh, suggested to me, I groaned and thought, "No, please, no! Surely there are, there are too many." Also, I don't like going over ground that's been covered before anyway. I love I love exploring new subjects where other people haven't been. And also, you know, biographies are, on the face of it, they're much simpler than other subjects because they're not so complicated. You know, you, you, there's a beginning, a middle and an end, and it's one life. But actually, the problem is that if you're going to do a biography properly, you've really got to get right into the person. And that has to start off with understanding the landscape in which they grew up. And I mean the cultural, emotional, psychological, ideological landscape of their, particularly their formative years. You know, I sometimes say to people, you know, you couldn't write a biography of, say, Tony Blair in 30 years' time without explaining what was going on in the pop world of the 1970s. Uh, Because that whole atmosphere of the time it had a huge impact on him, the way he behaved, the way he thought, the way he liked to present himself and so on. And so for Napoleon, what you've got to begin by doing, and this is where a lot of particularly Anglo-Saxon historians fall short, but even some of the French, is to really understand and know, have a knowledge of 18th century French literature and culture. And I'm fortunate enough to have um, actually studied that rather a lot. In, indeed, I studied that in depth at, at, at Oxford beyond the call of duty, actually, because I was just fascinated in, in the way that the the mind, the way people thought was developing as they shed religious beliefs and began to create a new cultural and ideological belief system, which in some ways came into being in, you know, is brought into fact by the French Revolution and so on.
1: I think it's one of my favourite Napoleon quotes. You're probably going to tell it's misattributed now, but to understand a man, work out what the world looked like when he was 21 or something. And I've always thought that was... You mentioned about Tony Blair and, and it must be
0: true of everybody. Yes, I think it is true. And that's why I'm always ambivalent about biographies. So I did groan slightly for that reason, but also um, because, of course, there have been thousands of books on Napoleon. And I thought, do we really need another? But then when I thought about it, I thought, well, yes, we do need one, or at least I need one. And I always think this is what decides me. I can only really write a book if I feel actually, you know, I'd really like to get to the bottom of what that was all about. And actually, I suddenly realized that I had read a number of books on Napoleon. I had written about his invasion of Russia, about his fall. But actually, I still, I didn't really understand what made the wretched man tick. What, you know, how was it that this, you know, this little guy from, you know, Hicktown, Corsica, uh, which is one of the most backward places in the world at the time, uh, a smelly fishing village, really. Ayaccio, although it had a sort of supposed cathedral, I mean, it's it's tiny and, uh, the house you visit now as a tourist has absolutely no bears absolutely no relation to what the house he grew up in looked like. You know, it, it was absolutely you know it was the most obscure place he sprang from and you know i thought you know how did it come about what did he think he was doing what how, how did it happen because i don't buy all this you know he was a genius and just sort of sailed out and 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 you know sort of came forth and and it was natural so actually i then became intrigued and and so i thought okay i'll do it so tell me then about the intellectual and cultural ferment
1: in which he came of age which shaped him as a, as a young as a, as a boy and a young man
0: as a boy when he started reading he obviously ingested the the, the literature of the of, of the french enlightenment on the one hand the political literature and he by the time he was um 20 he was a firm republican and not a not a rabid revolutionary but a republican uh, but he also read the actual literary literature so he he read all the sentimental novels of the 18th century. And of course, what was beginning to come through was the early Romanticism. So he read and reread certain books. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, he obviously, he loved Rousseau's La Nouvelle Louise, but then afterwards said it was all rubbish. Uh, but he, um, his favourite book was Bernardin de Saint-Pierre's Paul et Virginie, uh, which is a, a lovely book, but it's Terribly sentimental, and he read and reread and reread that thing. he was still rereading it at the end of his life. Uh, the other thing he absolutely loved was um, the sorrows of young Werther, goethe 's book. He adored Ossian, and even when he was told that it was phony he didn 't care and indeed, you know he, he used to insist on telling people in his entourage once he 'd come to power whom to marry and how to name their children. And he was always choosing names either from antiquity, such as Ulysses or something, or from Ossian, uh, which is why um, why the um, Swedish royal family uh, are all called Oscar. <laughs> it comes from from uh, Ossian um, because he ordered Bernadotte to name one of his uh, sons Oscar. So he he read this sentimental but heroically sentimental literature. Uh, but also, he was brought up on, as was his entire generation, in the French military academies, Lutarch's Lives, and various texts of classical texts and, and Caesar's campaigns and so on uh, were absolute standard reading. And his generation, not just him, did grow up in the spirit of emulation of the great. Of the great figures of of antiquity, they all wanted to be Caesar, Alexander, Achilles, and so on, and so that explains a great deal. And they, um, uh, Madame de Stael, the Baron de Stael, wrote a very interesting text in the seventeen nineties, explaining that this whole thing, how the pursuit of a concept, which she defined as gloire, which is not the same as we mean as glory. It meant a kind of layman's ascent to sainthood. It was a sort of kind of it was the it was the lay modern equivalent, for then modern equivalent, of a fully fulfilled Christian life. And she explained that this generation for these young men, because they believed so much that by willing themselves to achieve gloire, they actually came to believe that they were capable of quite exceptional and supernatural things, which goes a long way to explaining how in those early campaigns he managed to get so much out of his troops, and there were all these young people, both troops and officers, who would simply storm batteries and, and do, perform unbelievable feats of of dashing daring do, which of course they gradually stopped <laughs> doing with quite so much Elon Panache uh, as they grew older. So that that is the climate in which he grew up, and there was a sort of auto suggestion which which flourished into really giving lending them. Remarkable powers simply because they believed in themselves and in what they were doing, and were determined to achieve their ends. So that, and that does come from from their, as I say, their literary cultural uh, landscape. So Napoleon is a student at the uh, French
1: Military Academy, serving the king. Louis the Sixteenth, and how old is he, and where exactly is he when the Bastille falls, and how important is he in the early bit of the French Revolution, seventeen eighty-nine to ninety-two, ninety-three? Does he is he prominent?
0: Well, he's a, he's exactly a month short of his twentieth birthday when the Bastille falls, and he's a second lieutenant in an artillery regiment, um, the best in, in in France. Like most of his comrades he welcomes it um, not just because he's a republican and realizes that France needs to be reformed but also because it promises to break the monopoly on promotion and advancement of the aristocracy
1: yeah, because artillerymen were sort of engineers they were there on their, they were different from infantrymen weren't they and cavalrymen
0: yes they were i mean they were all noblemen technically but they were from pretty they were really from gentry families. Some of them actually, not even that, but on the whole they were. But they were they were pretty low down the scale and they didn't have influence and patronage at court. So they they would advance in the artillery, but they would never, well, they wouldn't advance in other ways and, and they would always be remain fairly obscure. So for all of them, this was good news. What he didn't like one bit, and here we have to touch on something else, which is that Although he hardly knew his father, because he his father was away from home a lot, and then at nine he was sent away and didn't, only saw him possibly only once thereafter, before the father died. And he was a little bit embarrassed by his father's pushiness and snobbery. He was, Napoleon was nevertheless, had quite sort of middle-class views on things, and didn't like disorder and he was appalled by the fact that the soldiers in his um unit they didn't mutiny but they started sort of a bit of a riot and that horrified him and 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 all riots popular riots really appalled him he was um he was both um, he was disgusted by them and then when in 1792 he witnessed well he witnessed the first the time the day that um, the crowd broke into the tuileries and forced the king to drink an oath to, to put the red bonnet phrygian bonnet on his head and drink the toast to the french people and he witnessed that and he was appalled by that he thought although he was a republican he thought this was uh, he believed in authority Because he thought authority, you know, like an army can only function if there's a proper man in charge and and discipline is observed. He believed in authority. So he was appalled by that. And, of course, not long after that, he arrived on the scene. He didn't actually witness it, but he arrived on the scene shortly after the the 10th of um, August uh, storming of the Tuileries. And the massacre of the Swiss guards and the the defenders and the mutilation of their bodies by a sort of um, frenzied crowd of the lowest orders of Paris. And that horrified him, filled him with disgust, but also with fear. And he never shed, to the end of his life, he never shed the fear of the Paris mob, which actually he you know he was wrong because they they grew to love him and in 1814 if he had armed them and in 1815 if he'd armed them which they were they were begging him to do the allies would not have attempted to storm paris and certainly no bourbon would have liked to climb over the bodies of Dead, dead Parisian citizens to get on a throne—it simply wouldn't have happened. So, had he had the faith to do that, he might well have survived. Uh, but he didn't. He, he, he—that those moments of the revolution did—they remained with him for life, as they did with so many rulers. You know, it's fascinating that Charles X, who uh, you know was quite gung ho about defending his position suddenly lost his nerve and ran
1: the french king in the 1820s yes and in in in
0: 1848 louis philippe again because he had they had all seen the mob during the revolution and you know something that that haunted them and at at, you know the crucial moment they just thought help i'm getting out of here
1: (laughs) well napoleon dealt with the mob in a very particular way slightly later in the 1790s didn't he
0: Yes in fact that wasn't so much the mob and um, and actually we see we don't really know it's fascinating the whole thing about Vendemire, the the famed whiff of grape shot
1: so I have skipped it. I'm getting over excited so Napoleon we should say rises to prominence because of the siege of Toulon the british seize Toulon napoleon helps gain it back
0: yes um it wasn't that spectacular that 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 became a, the legend he he had a lucky break at Toulon because they needed an artillery officer and so he arrived on the scene he was he was immediately promoted from captain to the equivalent of major and told to take control of the artillery and what he discovered was that there were about eight quite light guns and that was about it so his real merit there uh, was that he just scoured the countryside and he grabbed anybody who'd ever served in the artillery or indeed in uh, supply columns and knew how to drag guns or do anything like that. Uh, he confiscated everything he could um, in order to, to to make up for lack of gun carriages and this and that. He seized bits of cannon that were sitting on various battlements in the area, brought them all together and built up a proper artillery force. And then he worked out, and it was not that original because the people in Paris had also worked it out, although not his commanders on the spot. He worked out, well, he just took one look at, at, at the terrain and said, look, you know, the taking Toulon by storming the defences was going to be long and exhausting and uh, very costly, whereas if you could remove its lifeline, which came from the sea admiral hood 's fleet, uh, then it would have to the whole thing would fold up in five minutes, and so the key was to secure a vantage point which controlled the access to the inner roadsteads of of Toulon and indeed the outer roadsteads and um because if you had guns on there no no ships were going to pass underneath them uh, so he concentrated on that and managed to and the, the the brits who'd realized this as well had put up some some um batteries there uh, but he managed to uh, knock them out and storm them and turn their guns and his own guns onto the Inner roads and start sending incendiary cannonballs onto the British and, and and Spanish ships there, and they began to evacuate the place. PDQ, uh, as some of their ships started blowing up and catching fire, so that gave him a break. He was then promoted to brigadier general. You know, which at the age of um, twenty-five, which wasn't that remarkable because thousands of generals had emigrated uh, and senior officers had emigrated, and there were quite a few generals younger than him already by then. So, um, uh, but still, that was a, a lucky break. But he sort of laid. You know, it wasn't like they said, "Oh, this guy's so brilliant; we must put him in command of an army here or there." They put him in command of the, the descent, the, the coastal defences of the south which was a a fairly important job. The Royal Navy kept on sort of patrolling, looking for a weak spot to to land British and Sardinian and Spanish troops. But it wasn't a sort of key position. And he came to prominence rarely when uh, he happened to be hanging around in Paris at a bit of a loose end in um, 1795 when uh, the... Directory was threatened by a revolt and of really royalist leaning sections of, of the Parisian National Guard. Uh, and they, um, he was brought in to help with the defense. Now, nobody really knows, because his account is certainly not entirely true, but nor are those of most of the other people involved. And we don't know whether he did fire great shot, whether he fired blanks thereafter, as he claims. The casualties were pretty small, but it was successful. And he must have shown some kind of ruthlessness or determination or some quality because he was then put in charge of in effect, about 40,000 troops in and around the capital, which actually made him one of the most powerful people in the land. But this is what's so extraordinary about Napoleon, is that although he had from early years, like most of his generation, dreamt of heroic deeds and uh, so on and so forth, he was actually terribly interested in money, and again, I come back to this rather middle-class thing about you know, he had to make set up his family, and he spent the the, the months following getting getting this nomination to command the the army of of the interior, it was called, to place all his his siblings and cousins and everybody he could in lucrative positions and to get hold of money we don't quite know how but uh, he certainly suddenly became quite wealthy uh, and to set himself up and he was more interested at that stage in property speculation in paris because there was a fantastic market at the end of the revolution with um, there were all these properties that had been confiscated from um emigre or guillotined noblemen which were all being sort of flogged off at a discount and people were buying them up and selling you know selling them on back-to-back deals and whatever and he he was fantastically interested in that He, he even got interested in in sort of importing luxuries which were short of which there was a shortage in in paris which had suddenly become a a kind of roiling center of pleasure after the fall of of the the terror of robespierre and the end of the terror suddenly paris became just you know a sort of carnivalesque city and so you know there was a You know, silk stockings and (laughs) things like that were in short supply. And he busied himself importing and sometimes indeed smuggling these things to to make some money. So it's, it's quite charming in a way. You see this man, if you really look at what's going on and read his letters, which of course have been republished from the originals. And the previous editions had all been bowdlerized because they were published during the Second Empire. And a lot of this stuff about property speculation had been cut out of them <laughs> being deemed to be less than glorious. And here you you get such a sort of sense of of the guy just trying to get ahead, you know, the little Corsican man trying to get himself and his family, because remember, you know, in Corsica it's it's, it's the family, it's the Cosa Nostra, it's you know, it's it's uh, we all hang together. So there he is setting himself up, and it, it's rather charming. And then he thinks, "I must get married." And he wants you know, his brother marries a wealthy merchant's daughter, and he wants to marry her sister because he thinks a decent diary, and you know, and having a wife around it'll help, and, and so on. You know, so he suddenly he becomes a kind of a very bourgeois creature, trying to set himself up. <laughs> If you listen to Dan Snow's History, we're talking
1: about Napoleon, obviously, more after this. Romans, gods, Spartans, the wars of Alexander the Great's successors, in incredible, entirely necessary detail. The Ancients podcast is kind of like Dan's show, except it's just ancient history. We've got the leading experts. We've got the big topics, from ancient Vietnam to the fall of Rome. Subscribe to The Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage and how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift... By visiting auraframes.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. If we're going to talk about greatness, does that come with when he's assigned to Northern Italy?
0: Yes, and then su- suddenly there's this extraordinary thing happens that, and I suspect that uh, Baran and the other directors thought, well, hang on, this guy is just... He began to, to just sort of do as he pleased and to, to he'd call in at the offices of the directory and actually sort of tell them, you know, you say, no, no, you're doing this all wrong, you should do it this way and that way, you know, because he was very clever and very practical and this began to get their goat and also they were going to worry hang on this guy might just you know he's got in the army <laughs> he can he can do anything so they thought two things first of all barat the chief director that um, was terribly keen to park his ex-mistress josephine de boane somewhere because she had no means of subs- subsistence she was you know growing a little bit past her prime um, he was sick of her and so he thought he must marry her off. So he thought possibly by marrying Napoleon that might calm him down a bit and take his mind off politics. Uh, and <clears throat> so he did that. And then very quickly, soon after that, he also decided, after deciding to set up this marriage, getting them together, he decided to send him off and give him a command in Italy, which was rarely a, like sending him to the least interesting theater of war the army that down there the army of italy was a, a complete mess it was a rabble of they they had no shoes most of them didn't have uniforms they didn't have hats they had most a lot of them didn't have arms i mean they were you know, they were deserting all over the place they were ill fed they weren't paid and they weren't supposed to do much they were supposed to go and, and really just kind of threaten the the Austrians and and the Sardinians uh, and stop them invading southern France but that was really all but of course Napoleon being Napoleon um, he thought right he raided every library he could in Paris and borrowed begged or stole maps and he spent a couple of weeks shut up in his rooms just reading everything about He'd already um, studied a bit the the, the whole Italian theatre when he was um, on on in, before he came up to Paris, but he again went over it. He reread the the campaigns of the French in the, uh, you know, in the times of Francis the and then in under Louis the Fifteenth. And he just studied and studied maps and the topography and, you know, working out which rivers could be forded, which couldn't, where you could ford them, where you couldn't ford them, which passes could be negotiated, you know, whether you could get artillery over some bridge or not, and that kind of thing. And not just for his lines of advance, but also putting himself, and this was what he was so good at, he then turned the tables look at it from the enemy's side and said, well, where would I, which routes would I advance along? And indeed, if I were threatened from here, what, where would I retreat to? And so um, he raced down there, knocked the army into, into some kind of shape uh, by every means at his disposal. They weren't particularly impressed by him to begin with, but he promised them rich booty over the mountains. And they were so desperate and bored that they thought, well, why not? And he delivered a series of lightning strikes. They weren't huge battles. They were quite small engagements, very often with just a few thousand on each side. But he inflated their significance. And he would address his men afterwards saying, you know, you've, you've won the greatest battles and whatever and your heroes and france will glory in your deeds and so on and um well first of all they could all pick proper boots off the the austrian prisoners or dead um and and sort of jackets and things and get a few slightly better muskets Uh, secondly they could uh, sort of loot and rape a bit um and fill their bellies Uh, and, And thirdly, there he was telling them they were heroes. And so they began to feel better and better and more and more excited about the whole thing. And he built up this sense of excitement and enthusiasm which really did turn them into a very, very agile and reactive force, sort of ready up for anything. And, of course, the other thing is he sent back these bulletins to Paris which were sort of 95% fiction inflating every engagement turning it into a great battle and saying how many prisoners he'd taken and how many cannon he'd captured and so on inflating the figures shamelessly and and this was really what created Napoleon because the directory were unpopular and you know if you're an unpopular government what better thing to do than to plaster the street corners and the newspapers with accounts of heroic daring do by your armies? So they started, you know, sending all this, you know, his, his propaganda, diffusing it throughout France. And it was some time before they realised that oh, hang about, <laughs> we've created a hero. <laughs> but of course, by then he was also sending back money. You know, he'd, he'd require what he called contributions from uh, all the locals and uh, grab any money he could, and he'd send him back to Paris. And, of course, the, this was absolute manna from heaven to, to this unpopular and rather bankrupt government. Uh, so they gradually became totally dependent on him for money, and they'd created a monster <laughs> that they couldn't control.
1: Right so he's 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 making a name for himself in northern Italy.
0: Yes and he comes back to Paris and the wretched directory has to uh, Willy nilly has to give a huge festival and and pretend to give him a hell of a homecoming, uh, because not only has he won all these terrific victories and has the whole population of France come to see him as a hero, he's also brought peace—a peace which actually the Directory didn't really want, but which the population did. So he was the hero of the day, but he realised that he was extremely unpopular. Amongst the political classes, and liable to be poisoned. he he'd, every time they gave an official banquet, he'd he'd bring his own loaf of bread and and a bottle of wine, uh, and he never, when he dined out, he never had anything except hard boiled eggs or boiled eggs and and um, or anything he brought because he was convinced that he was going to be poisoned. And so they wanted to get him out of the way as quickly as possible. So the first thing they did was make him commander of the army of England, saying, "Right, this will." test him he'll you know it's an impossible mission so he's bound to fail so but then he says look I'm not doing this because it's not going to work so then they think up Talleyrand actually thinks up and they say well let's send him off to to Egypt we need a new colony because the Brits have taken all our West Indians colonies so how about this for a colony and let's send him off there he'll be far away and can't cause too much trouble so they send him off there and, of course, he lands there and captures Cairo, and that would be good enough, and he was intending to come back after having done that. But, of course, the Brits did him the greatest favour of all by by with um, Nelson sinking his fleet in the Battle of the Nile because it meant he was stuck there. And suddenly he couldn't be ordered about by the Directory, and he suddenly became an autonomous ruler of a huge land, the land of the pharaohs, and he had his own army... He had nobody telling him what to do, and he really tasted power. And not just military power, but civil power. He began, you know, a, a land registry. He started lighting the streets of Cairo. He started a sewage system for Cairo, a street sweeping system. You know, he, he, he actually started to enjoy being a ruler. And that gave him a taste for power and a sense that actually he'd be quite a good ruler. And the second outcome was that because the the Ottomans were sending an army down through Syria and Palestine, he went off to head it off. And there was this, they followed this grueling campaign through the desert and through scorching sands and then through the mud of Palestine and then up to Acre. Where he met his first defeat, his first failure, and by then his army was you know they had an epidemic of plague they had they, they were running out of supplies, morale was incredibly low. his generals, most of whom were senior to him, were beginning to complain horribly and he managed by sheer ruthlessness and determination to keep them together, to whip them into line, to bring them back and announce that it had been a great victory. And that tested his mettle. And even old Clébert, who hated him, said, God, well, he's got one thing which nobody else has, this horrid little bugger. He dares, and he dares to dare things that nobody else will dare. And he he took his hat off to him. He then abandoned them, right? (laughs) Well, he didn't abandon them because, in fact, he had been recalled by the directory, but the letter never got to him. Uh, But he saw that France was being attacked and it looked as though she might fall. And that would have been very bad for France and very bad for General Bonaparte and his army. So he decided to go back to Paris, leaving his army regarding him them, himself then almost as a sort of monarch or at least a political lieutenant. He felt he could, you know, hand over his command to General Clébert, which was a perfectly sensible thing to do, and he made a dash back to Paris to organise proper supplies for it and see what was going on. And, of course, he landed just a few days after the news of his very good victory, his resounding victory at Aboukir reached France. And so suddenly there was a piece of good news on the horizon, you know, suddenly a victory for French arms. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, there is the hero himself. And everybody said, and France seemed to be in the mess. She was threatened by invasion. And they thought, goody good, he's going to save France. And, you know, that was it. And from that moment, it was just a question of, how he, was going to, how he was going to do it. And ironically, it was the directors themselves, the government, the members of the government, who wanted to you know, carry out a coup. It's just that each of them wanted to carry it carried out in a different way. And so, in a sense, he, he, he suddenly found himself born on a wave. Which he surfed brilliantly, although I have to say on the actual day of Brumaire, of the coup d'etat, he almost buggered up the whole thing. But he, he was um, he was born to power, really, by the will of a great, great many people.
1: Well, that was a remarkable... Thank you for the, the rise of Napoleon in 40 minutes.
0: You've got everything you need to know there. Adam, the book is called... It's called Napoleon, The Man Behind the Myth. The idea is to actually get to the bottom of who he was, what he thought he was doing and how he did it. And the rise is fascinating and and exciting and, and terribly impressive. And then there's this extraordinary and quite long decline and fall, uh, which is extraordinary. He could have stopped it so many times. He could have saved himself and his throne and he could have done anything. And... What's so interesting is why he couldn't, and he couldn't bring himself to do it because he lacked faith in himself ultimately. He was riven by insecurities, and he felt that only when he could deliver great victories and piles of glory would people accept him, and he felt that they weren't going to accept him just for himself.
1: Well, you've, you've, I've, I'm fascinated by this period of history, and you've already taught me so much, so thank you very much. I'm also very glad to hear that greatness is a product of hard work, not being touched by the finger of fate.
0: Definitely hard work, and um, clever use of the right people, although later then he laid too much faith in the wrong people. Uh, Marshall,
1: Ney, no, the bravest of the brave on the field of Waterloo. What a disaster. I want to come back and hassle you another time. We'll complete this conversation, but good luck with the book. Thank you very much. On sale now, everybody. Thank you. I feel
0: we hand the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished.
1: Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favor, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there, law of the jungle out there, and I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome, but if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Planning for your next trip.